درود و سلام Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Jeremiah podcast Before we begin, uh, I have some exciting updates to share with you, dear listener First and foremost, if you're a fan of my content, please consider subscribing to my Substack page This is where I write short stories, essays, podcast episode descriptions, and of course, you'll find there Sparta's diary, where Sparta shares his musings on the human condition and the world around him. And the best part is that all proceeds of the subscriptions will be donated to NGOs such as Learn Afghanistan, an organization which is dedicated to learning, education, and spreading knowledge in one of the most child and friendly places on earth, namely Afghanistan. Now, if you're looking for more of my brilliant takes on all sorts of topics, hop on over to my Twitter. That's where I really let loose and share my insights on everything from politics to culture. And if you have any questions or ideas for future episodes, I'm always open to hearing them there. Lastly, I want to mention that I'm expanding my horizons and doing more interviews and conversations in English, just to make sure everyone can join in on the fun. And don't worry. I'll still be releasing podcasts in Farsi as well. All right, that's enough housekeeping for now. Today's guest is none other than the remarkable Pashtana Durani. Pashtana Durani is a feminist, an activist, and an educator from Afghanistan who has defied all odds to become a beacon of hope for young girls in her country. At the tender age of 21, she took on the mantle of her family's head following the untimely death of her father. Undeterred by the challenges that lay ahead, Parsanajan founded Learn Afghanistan, the country's first ever digital school network. Her unwavering commitment to education has led her to continue providing hundreds of girls with access to learning, even in the face of Taliban's ban on girls attending school. Although forced into exile by the Taliban takeover in 2021, Parsanajan's spirit and dedication to the cause continue to inspire thousands of people, young and old, around the world. Known for her bluntness and courage, Pashtana John is a regular commentator on TV and radio shows and has been the subject of articles and profiles including PBS, BBC, L, Der Spiegel, and Wellesley College. Moreover, Pashtana John has been named a global education champion by the Malala Fund uh, for her outstanding work to advance Afghan girls' education. The BBC nominated her as one of its 100 most influential women of 2021, and she is also included in Time's 100 Talks in 2022. Pashtana John is a member of the Feminist Education Coalition. She's an Aspen New Choices Fellow, and she received many, many leadership prizes. Previously, she has served as a global youth representative for Amnesty International, and she's a recipient of the UN Young Activist Award 2022. In our conversation today, uh, Pashtana John and I explored a wide range of topics that truly capture the essence of our life's work. We took a deep dive into Pashtana John's personal journey and the incredible story of how she founded Learn Afghanistan. From there, we touched on the critical role of technology and artificial intelligence in education, as well as the broader societal issues of gender equality, culture, religion, politics, philosophy, and activism. And of course, we couldn't forget to talk about Pashtana John's upcoming book, Last to Eat, Last to Learn, a deeply personal account of her experiences and insights, set to be published this May. 
Throughout our conversation, Farsana John shared her unique perspectives and insights, drawing on her personal experiences and her deep commitment to improving the lives of those around her. Her work is a shining example of the transformative power of education and a testament to the human spirit in the face of adversity. Finally, in the rapid fire section, I asked her a series of fun and thought-provoking questions through which I really hope you will get to know Pashana John on a more personal level. Her accomplishments at such a young age is simply exceptional, and it was an absolute honor to have her share her wisdom and perspectives with me. I hope you find this conversation as enlightening and inspiring as I did. And now, dear friends, here is Pashtana Durani. I'm here with Pashtana Durani. Pashtana John, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right, Pashana John. Um, so you have a quite an incredible personal uh, story and a journey, I would say. So from growing up in a refugee camp uh, in Pakistan to becoming the founder and director of Learn, uh, which is a nonprofit organization uh, kind of dedicated to promoting uh, digital literacy and education for Afghan children in Afghanistan. So perhaps. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, this journey of yours and perhaps share with our audience how your personal experiences kind of have shaped, you know, your work, your worldview and kind of your mission and activism? Sure. Thank you so much for that question. So, um, I mean, like every time people look at Afghan women, all they think is like, oh, there's so much tra- tragedy there, you know, oh, so much suffering and everything. I come from a very happy family. I grew up in a happy family. Um uh, we, I had a very supportive father. Um, his whole focus was on uh, education. And I think that's true for all Afghan women, almost, almost. I wouldn't say everyone, but like, you know, a majority of them do have that sort of uh, upbringing and access to someone in their life that supports education. Um, but other than that, I was a very shy kid. <laughs> for seven years of my life, I was an extremely shy kid. I would stand in the corner and not talk to anyone. I would communicate through my father with other human beings. That was the sort of upbringing I had. But I think after eight Age seven, I became an extremely overconfident kid, which to this day I am. Um, but that's the sort of thing. I think um, the only reason I lean towards what I do is because I grew up in a house that was teaching all the time, like 24 by 7. Um, we lived in a refugee camp in this village, and this whole village is an Afghan refugee camp, which is from our district where we come from in Afghanistan. So everyone is a Marofai. And I remember, like, you know, these people who would come, like, international community, and they're like, oh, you can just walk to the next uh, village and have school there, you know, with um, and send your daughters there. And my father's like, that's the stupidest thing somebody could say to us, you know. Why would we walk so much and to that place? And nobody's going to do that in the first place. And it's a refugee camp. People are scared about their kids, boys and girls. Um, so my father's like, you know what, I'm going to open a school in our own house. And he did. The next day, we just opened a school. My auntie was uh, uh, proposed to teach, and she did. And she used to teach every day, Amayim. And she t- taught every uh, day, every single day, there, two times uh, per day. And my mom used to teach maths. And suddenly, our house became a space where girls would just come and study. They would have mm. access to all sorts of learning and stuff. Mm. 
when I was growing up, I hated that. I'm going to be honest. I was like, why is everyone in our space all the time? Why are they here? What is this? And like, I remember like, you know, those uh, summer um, holidays that you have like for three months <laughs> every day, this girl and the 70 girls would come with her and she would be the leader and she would like, you know, knock on our door and she would be like, oh, is the school open yet? And I would be like, no, it's not. You may not come. <laughs> and uh, that would happen like the whole three months and then the schools would open and then they would continue coming in. So I sort of grew up in that environment where education was such an important and integral part, especially female education. I didn't grow up in a house where I'm like, oh, boys school. No, it was a girl's school and it was access to girls school in a very typical ruler way. So that's my sort of upbringing. And that's I think subconscious teacher training that my father did for me, yeah. Right. So let me ask you a question about, you know, uh, you growing up in, in that kind of environment. Uh, what were some of the uh, challenges perhaps you faced kind of growing up as a girl in a, I would say, relatively conservative society, if you will, in, oh, yeah. in, in a refugee camp, you know, uh, in Pakistan, and then I believe later on in, in Kandahar. So how was that like the experience? The, it's it's sometimes when people listen to me they think i come from a very uh, liberal family i don't <laughs> i come from an extremely conservative family um my mom still hides her face uh from four of my uncles within our house whenever they come and visit us um it's just how things have been my sister doesn't upload her pictures on social media and everything because she thinks it's not nice so i'm not telling you that oh we think that's bad or good it's just mm -hmm. Those are the choices that they made. Nobody forced it on them, but that is normal for them. Um, normally, people would be like, oh, that's extremely conservative. How do you do that? Why would you do that, right? Mm -hmm. For my family, luckily, we had the choice. I had the choice to show my face. Mm -hmm. My family doesn't want to show it, and I respect that. Um, growing up into that conservative environment, I think the only thing I was always triggered by was like the competition I had with my male cousins. Like for them, it was very hard to grasp that a girl could be something. They're like, oh, person is going to grow up. She's going to become a teacher or a doctor, and then she's going to get married off and we're going to be done with her. And like they, that was something they would look, look forward to. They're like, oh, thank God she's going away. But the funny thing is um, in a fairly conservative space, I grew up very um, in the space where I own everything, you know, I had that ownership. Um, my father was like very open about it. It's like, you own the same land like they do, challenge them all the time. So when we were on like, you know, on the same uh, um, uh, food table, which is like the Sarhan and back home, we would sit and like my cousins would, uh, whenever I used to talk, I was very shy about it. And then my cousins would talk with me, they're like, oh, this and that. And then I would scream at the top of my lungs just to make myself heard. And I think that's the competitiveness that comes into me because of them. I'm grateful for that. But um, Overall, that was the sort of thing that uh, made me the person I think I am, uh, taking pride in the ownership of the land that I come from, mm -hmm. the roots that I come from, but also not being sad about the fact that I come from a conservative tribal family. Yes, that mm -hmm. is the reality, um, but there are good parts to it. My father was so big on love. He was like the tribal chief, right? So whenever like a guy would propose for a girl and then everyone would be like, no, this is not happening. I'm not giving my daughter away or something. My father would be like, no, let them live, let them marry off. So I came from that sort of mentality. For me, it's very different when people are like, oh, you guys are extremely conservative and that's how, like, you know, you yeah. have a sad life. I'm like, yeah, no, we don't. We have a very good life, but right. yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, your father and um, 
every thought leader, um, that you know, every female activist, if you will, and feminist that I have talked to uh, so far, you know, on the podcast or off the podcast, um, you know, whether it was Sahra John, you know, Sahra Karimi, Ayatar on the podcast, Zarifa John, uh, Zarifa Ghafari, um, they all kind of, you know, had one thing in common, and that's, you know, their unique kind of bond or relationship, uh, you know, with their father, who kind of supported them and encouraged them, uh, you know, throughout, throughout their lives. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about this. Uh, you know, what is it about daughters' uh, relationships with their fathers uh, that kind of ultimately, you know, helps them thrive and flourish and become successful human beings? Let me give you an example. Um, when I was very young, my father used to take me every Friday for ice cream uh, in his car. And I wouldn't sit in the back. I always wanted to sit in the front. So he would drive, I would sit in the front. And I grew up, I was fairly older. I was like 10 or something. And um, because we still were in refugee camp, the, the market was also the same sort of thing. And people there were extremely conservative. So having a 10-year-old daughter in the front seat of your car without any scarf or anything was deemed very bad. And this uh, man comes up to my father and he tells him that, why do you bring your daughter to everything? Why is she always there with you? Like you're in a jirga, she's there. While you're going somewhere, she's there. Like she's not something that... And my father just looked at him and was like, she is not a female person. She is my child. He just made sure that people stop seeing me as a gender and more as a person, as a person who's someone's child and they love them and they're going to take them to, for that thing. They're going to parent them the same way. Um, now coming back to this topic of like how girls, because in our society, we're taught to be shy, to be like silent, to be more uh, approachable in a sense. We're like, oh, if she's shy, she's silent, she'll get married earlier. I'm not going to hide that from here. That's always the case. And uh, girls have this gap with their father where they cannot talk to them, they cannot communicate. Nobody has believed in them all their whole life. And they become this person who's all shut down. People who are young girls whose parents believed in them and fathers believed in them become these amazing superheroes. So if you look at Zeripa or Sara or anyone else in the whole wide world, you'll see these women are not then women. These are like, you know, these amazing superheroes who know that they're important, that they matter. They matter as a human being, not just because of their gender, you know, and they're not something to be married off or something to be used as a transaction. I think that's the mm. most important mm. thing. That's what makes us thrive in our own uh, society. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not like Afghanistan doesn't have a history of that. We have a history of female Afghan women, leaders, warriors, people, poets, who thrived because somebody in their family believed in them, a male uh, believed in them. So I think it comes from the, that, those roots in history, actually, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, you're right now living in the U.S., yes? Yeah, I am, yes. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I, I read a little bit about uh, you having this opportunity when you were young. I believe you were like 16 and you were living uh, in Pakistan yeah. in, one, in the refugee camps. And you were... Uh, selected uh, by the Oxford University to actually uh, join them and so you got an invitation and you actually then kind of refused to go if I'm not mistaken and you stayed no I will I will stay and uh, what was the reason for that and why didn't you 
school? So that was a prep school, like, you know, because I did all levels, which is like a first pathway towards A-levels. And then you go to all these London-based schooling or European schools. Um, I did my O-levels and then I was going through this space where I was applying for all these colleges and everything. And like, of course, I wanted to end up in a good university. Who doesn't, right? Especially when you come from a refugee camp where you have 56 cousins to prove to that you're the best person alive. Um, you have a lot of competition there. Um, and frankly, your parents want you to end up in a safe space we are, where you're regarded as a human being, not just as a refugee. Um, so I had all of that and I applied for all these schools and I got accepted into all these d amazing schools and prep schools. So this mm -hmm. was a pathway towards Oxford where I would be accepted full time right. then. Mm -hmm. um, but then I ended up going to Kandar because I was also applying for American University of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And that's where I, the first time I w went and I remember going to Spinball, like just crossing the border and meeting all my family members. And the weirdest thing happened to me was like, people that were related to me by blood didn't have access to school, didn't know, couldn't go to schools. They were IDPs, which is internally displaced people from Maruf because Maruf was being bombed and like, you know, the Taliban held it as hostage. So a lot of people moved to Spinbulldak. And um, I had my own cousin, Dordana, who couldn't go to school. And on one side, we took pride in educating girls. On the other, in my own country, where we are not refugees, we still don't have access to school, although there's promises of everything that's being done. Um, and that's where it changed my whole mentality. And the funny thing is, my mom was like, you can come back. My father told me, you can come back and then do all of this stuff. And part of me was like, no, I'm going to stay and I'm going to do it. And then maybe I'll go for my master's. And I'm so thankful I listened to myself instead of my parents. Because by the time I would have graduated, Afghanistan wouldn't have been the same place that I wanted to be in. Um, I graduated last year. And right now you can see that Afghanistan is not the same country that I mm -hmm. worked in, that I was in, that I lived in, and that I still love, but it's mm -hmm. definitely not the same Afghanistan. So um, I stayed. So looking like back, it, you know, when you look back now, uh, you believe that you made the right decision then? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, if I, I get a chance again, I would definitely do the same thing. I would, I would even go earlier. Um, yeah. yeah, I would definitely choose Afghanistan over any university. It's important. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's let's talk about uh, education and healthcare, if you don't mind. Um, so these are, I believe, the two key areas that you um, have really been kind of focusing on. Um, so maybe we should start by talking a little bit about, um, in more depth, I would say, about LEARN and uh, digital literacy. Um, and now I know that LEARN has done incredible work uh, in providing education to Afghan children, you know, across the country and various uh, locations and provinces. So not just Kandahar. Um, so how many teachers um, and students are we talking about here uh, who are kind of involved in this project? Currently, we have 230 young girls from age seven, 13 to 18, from grade 7 to 12. Uh, and then we have around 30 teachers, female teachers, um, uh, who are right now teaching. Um, that's like current figures that we have. We teach in Kandar, Hilman, Bamiyan. In the past, we have had five schools, which was like Tahar and Kabul included. Um, our plans still are to expand to other provinces and continue to uh, reopen our schools in the two provinces that were closed. The reason was lack of resources and also a lot of focus was not being given to education. So we had to prioritize where students would still show up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's something that we have done. 
Um, more of our one thing that people do confuse is like they think if we say digital literacy, maybe we're teaching everything online. These are in-person schools. These are schools where girls can actually go, access a laptop, internet, have teachers who are teaching them digital skills, freelancing, web development and everything. And at the same time, teaching them biophysics, chemistry, mathematics, uh, female mm. uh, Afghan history, literature. So that's the sort of thing that we are doing right now. Yeah. Mm. So maybe if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the biggest, say, successes, but also the challenges, you know, um, and kind of running learn uh, now, I would say from outside because, you know, you're not uh, on the ground there. So it, it must come with some challenges there uh, for you specifically. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think uh, every other week my staff makes fun of me because I have like nervous breakdown and I'm like, oh my God, we're going to lose everything. This is going to end. This is the apocalypse or something. Um, that happens every other week. Um, I'm not sort of like, I wouldn't say a very stable person who's leading everything. <laughs> but um, at the same time, we are very innovative when it comes to learn. Uh, the bans happened. We were like, you know what? We're going to transition into someone's house and start there. And mm. then uh, they stopped teachers. And we were like, you know what? We're going to transition into teaching online, teachers from somewhere else. The students will be in the same space. And right. then um, like they stopped, uh, like, you know, sending uh, Afghanistan money was such a huge issue. And we were like, you know what, we're going to use this platform to send money. So, yes, there are always going to be challenges. Yes, there are times where we are scared because communications are being monitored. Students are being monitored. Everyone is being monitored. Um, there are times where person other than is not allowed to be on the legal license for learn today in Afghanistan um, because I'm a woman. I'm an Afghan yeah. woman and I don't have a foreign passport, so I'm not allowed to legally uh, hold uh, organization in executive director position. Thank mm. God I'm registered in the US so I can hold that position. Um, so yes, there are always going to be those sort of issues and challenges. Internet has been such a huge challenge and we have been working on it for the past two years, how to make it more accessible. Uh, we work with zero meter data where you work with a SIM card company and you click on the link and you don't need the internet for it. We're working with radio channels right now and focusing, they could give educational art programs and they are doing it right now. Um, we're focusing on like, you know, sending stuff on tablets to people's homes and young girls' mm -hmm. houses to make sure it's accessible. So we do all those sort of things. But at the same time, um, it's one thing to focus on education. It's another thing when it's legally banned. So I had actually a question about that because uh, I'm not sure how accurate this this is, but recently I think I, I read somewhere on the news pro probably. Um, so the Taliban, I think they announced that all uh, private learning centers in places like Kandahar, I believe, uh, should also close their doors. So your organization is working, I believe, on the ground uh, you know, the way you described it just yet. So, um, yeah. you know, how have such kind of decrees and policies from the regime actually affected the work that you and your organization are trying to do inside Afghanistan? Sure. Uh, the first challenge is like uh, back in the day, we worked with 18 public schools, right? And pre-August 2021, 20, uh, you work with 18 public schools, you work with more than a thousand teachers. Then you go towards 400 students and then 230 students. And then, then you have to focus on like training young people to become teachers because other teachers are scared. 
you know, these are public servants. They don't want to be involved in something that's going to jeopardize them because they're already in the system. So there's a lot of that going that goes on. The space was like, oh, the schools are banned, but other private schools were functioning, private centers were functioning. And they're like, private schools should close down. Now they're like, private uh, centers should close down. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, we work with homes, people's homes. We are in someone's home or in someone's apartment that is being donated to us. We work there. Um, but mm-hmm. yes, in the past, we have worked with institutions and we had to change our spaces every now and then because it was not functioning the same way it was not working the same way and people are too scared to like you know challenge that everyone lives there everybody's family lives there it's a very hard thing to navigate especially um gdi which is like kandar's uh, special intelligence department mm-hmm. they are not like other places they're not like Kabul. Mm. They're not like other pieces uh, that in, happen. In what sense? In what sense they're not the same? You mean? They're gonna track track you. They're gonna follow you. They're gonna make sure that they scare the hell out of you. I have had people and cases where girls went missing, not from our school, but another sister school that we knew of, um, because the girl posted on Facebook and they knew where she comes from and they just took her for three days and then she was given back. Um, but that's a bad thing in. In a Kandari family, if you do that, they're not just going to make you stop going to any space. They're going to make your Dr. Omar, Dr. Kaka, and every like cousins and everyone mm. stop going completely. So you're not shutting down an opportunity door on one girl. You're literally closing off all the doors on all the 500 people that are related to them, literally, especially young girls. So those are the sort of things that are happening right now under the ground. Activists are going missing. Professor Marshall was uh, arrested for months now, and he was just released a few days ago. Wisa is also missing. Um, fe- uh, female activists are missing. So I think the spaces are get- getting very constricted in that sense. Yeah. That must be that must be really tough because you know, like operating in that kind of environment, uh, and also yourself not being there on the ground. Uh, you know, you obviously hear these reports and then you kind of adapt accordingly. Um, I I can only imagine how how difficult that must be for yourself, but also for all the students and teachers who are still kind of trying, you know, their best. Uh, on a on a daily basis, you know, based on what is going on and 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 you know, being monitored all the time, and and kind of operate in that space. I mean, um, are they telling you? Uh, are they sharing those experiences with you? You know how it is right now as we speak. You know what is going on there. Every time, um, I remember uh, there was a time when I would sleep with my phone in my hand because I was like, what if something happens? Because it's day in Afghanistan and it's night in the U.S. And something happens. So what if somebody goes missing? I became extremely paranoid. And then we had to put like, you know, risk and mitigation policies in space. Uh, so we like, I can get a six hour sleep properly, you know. Uh, so that has happened in the past. There have been times where we had to change houses multiple times. Mm-hmm. There have been times where we had to tell the teachers that they shouldn't come to the space will work on something and then they can teach online or something like that because they might be monitored or their region might be monitored their area might be monitored they might have been followed um right so those are the sort of things that have always happened um but at the same time uh one thing i have learned is and the only reason that keeps me going i'm going to be honest is i'm sitting in the us i have fairly comfortable life um i can go and pick up any job and everything i can do that uh but at the same time it fascinates me that in today's Afghanistan, 230 girls still show up at the steps of my school. 
um, mm. that's being functioned in this clandestine environment, and they're still mm -hmm. showing up. These teachers mm -hmm. are still showing up. It's uh, in uh, in person it's like you give them like tons of money, a few people won't have the heart to show up. These women and these girls are still showing up. So if they can, I should show up for them every day, you know, and do that again and again. So yes, there are challenges. There are things that are out of our control. And yes, we adapt a lot on weekly basis, honestly. Um, but at the same time, there are things that <laughs> these girls do that fascinate me. What is it that, that you think that motivates them so much to take that risk and endanger basically their lives and still with you know with all these difficulties and every day you know they, they'll get like something on top of all the restrictions that are already in place you know they would they would hear something else which makes it even more difficult for them to operate and and be there and kind of get the educations you know what do you think it's really uh like motivating all these girls that kind of show up there and knowing that it's such a tough environment and and that can actually have consequences for them. Because they didn't believe in the Afghanistan is that is just being introduced by the Taliban right now because they believe that there is a better Afghanistan waiting for them and that they probably lived in, you know? Um, that's the goal. I myself growing up all my childhood believed that there was an Afghanistan. Of course, I romanticized it in my head, um, but I believed in that and I still do. I'm gonna be honest, I still do. And the next generations are gonna do that. My siblings follow me, my cousins follow me all the time and they think, that's the Afghanistan we all deserve. These young girls also believe the same thing. That's an Afghanistan that is going to accept her as a daughter in all her right, in all her ownership, just in being a, like a second class citizen. And and we have a 3,000 year history to back that up, not just mm. few 70,000 men who just took for, uh, for a few hundred days and think they can own Afghanistan. No, mm. Afghanistan is bigger than that. Well, let me ask you a uh, question about healthcare, actually. Um, so this is another area of your focus. Uh, so um, what is the current situation of uh, maternal healthcare in Afghanistan? Uh, what are some some of the main challenges uh, that, for example, you know, pregnant women, for example, or mothers, you know, young girls, um, with regards to uh, menstrual hygiene uh, management, right? Um, uh, that they are facing uh, in some of the rural areas, say, uh, and, and in villages and things like this? Um, and has your own organization uh, been able to provide any support in that respect? So we have done menstrual hygiene management for the past five years now. Every year we would do our trainings. We would give them biodegradable pads. We would actually make pads with girls. There was a, a whole training session where we would provide the raw material and we would do that uh, with public school students from grade seven to grade 12. Um, that was a sole focus of that. Now that we are completely different uh, timeline, we still do that with our students that we have, but at the same time with uh, mothers or infants and prenatal and postnatal healthcare, which is a very different story, we try to focus more on clinics where they can access all the free healthcare. We provide all the services, for example, if they need access to ultrasound, which is not affordable for most people in Afghanistan, of access to RUTF, RUSF, nutrition, that's still a big challenge in Afghanistan, access to just simple vitamins and minerals when you're pregnant. That's such a huge luxury. So we provide all of that. We provide medicine, anything that would help you with iron. And most importantly, those monthly checkups that you need, that's something that we provide free of cost to expecting mothers and someone who has had a baby. Um, mm -hmm. 
so we have been doing this all around like for the past one year the reason that it triggered uh this notion was there was a refugee that went to Quetta, like across the border and went to Quetta in Pakistan. And the first thing that happened to them was like they wouldn't give her free access to like, you know, uh, healthcare, uh, especially like the, the when she was in labor and she died right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the case was very um, like nobody cared about it. The Taliban took over. Of course, they were already sold people. So it's, mm-hmm. nobody would stand up to the Pakistan and say, okay, you could have given her healthcare or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think Taliban do take pride in Afghans being treated badly in Pakistan. Like that's the sort of thing that they go with. So that mm-hmm. triggered this whole notion of like, okay, healthcare is important. We need to find a solution before somebody crosses the border and dies. You need to do mm-hmm. something like before the border ends. Um, that's right. where we started with like free healthcare checkups, mobile clinics, started working with all these doctors and everyone. We pay for everything. We make sure that we have access to all the patients and everything. But um, I don't want it to be like something, a bureaucratic process. So if a patient ends up in one of our clinics, she can access everything. That's it. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to wait for something. Like that's the goal right. and that's what we do. Right, right. So... I wanted to actually shift to something else, which is like technology and social media in, in, th- in this specific uh, context, you know, that you're talking about healthcare and everything else, uh, education. So um, how can um, the big tech companies say, you know, these, these tech giants such as, you know, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, all these, all these platforms, how can they help reach these, you know, the people, maybe even these these kids, you know, in those remote areas of the planet, basically. Um, um, you know, imagine, for example, yourself, you know, you had a chance, say, um, to kind of sit down uh, with someone like uh, Satya Nadella, uh, you know, the Microsoft CEO, or um, uh, Elon Musk, uh, the CEO of, uh, you know, I don't know, multiple companies, uh, you know, uh, who is, by the way, the owner of the Starlink uh, you know, providing internet through those areas as well. So, you know, you had, suppose, two minutes to talk to these people. Um, you know, what would be your message to them and uh, and how their companies uh, and themselves actually could kind of help realize, you know, some of your organization's uh, goals and, uh, and dreams? I think all these uh, companies have a philanthropy section and a lot of them do a lot of grant support towards uh, different countries and different causes one thing i have seen is they don't focus a lot on afghanistan so if i had two minutes i would tell them that afghanistan is an important country and maybe they need to focus on afghanistan and shift towards afghanistan that's the most important thing also we wouldn't need their first hand laptops or something like that give us refurbished ones but give those to us we need those um lack of digital gap is such a big thing in afghanistan with starlink of course Mm. we would go for internet like give us internet uh um and also ban taliban from the twitter so of course all those things uh, but (laughs) yeah yeah definitely all of those right right so well, something that has kind of occupied my mind lately is really this thing with uh, artificial intelligence, AI. I actually want to ask a question about that. So as you know, there is a lot uh, happening in, uh, in AI space uh, lately, um, you know, with the release of these large language models, uh, you know, such as uh, ChatGPT and GPT-4 and all these things. Now, I personally believe um, uh, that these can be, you know, great learning tools. Uh, that can that can be you know used utilized as as you know as, as teachers educators things like this. 
do you see any potential for these AI tools and the work you do with regards to education, you know, teaching, uh, knowledge sharing, all these things? Yes, uh, even now, me and my development uh, uh, thing, we are right now uh, specifically focusing on how can chat GPT and like, you know, they can help us with more learning modules that could help us like you know generate more content that's relevant that could be needed in the next 10 years we're definitely exploring that part but at the same time i read about it yesterday it was like you know how ai is generating those translations for afghan asylum seekers and it's being Mm -hmm. translated in a very wrong way and it's ending up a lot of people seeking asylum not being able to be granted asylum so i think there's like Mm -hmm flaws to it um, in yeah. the learning sector if it's used properly it could definitely help a lot of people who might not have access to a lot of luxury like internet and electricity um, but at right. the same time um, it has to be decolonized it's extremely colonized right now it's very west focused it's very english focused you know um, mm. so it, it has to be decolonized it has to go right. more towards something that could cater to all people i think i always right. have an issue with how colonized the whole humanitarian industry, how technology is colonized, and how it needs to be decolonized to cater to, especially to Afghans. Um, so right. we have to take that ownership, honestly, at some point. Right. I think I, I I understand where you're coming from because, you know, I was playing around with with, this, with these tools, you know, also kind of, uh, I tried, you know, the translation and everything else. And first of all, the translation uh, wasn't that great. And um, second of all, with regards to uh, what you just said about colonization, you know, I, I know that the data, data sets that have been kind of used for, for, you know, educating these tools to come up, you know, give us the outputs. Obviously, that is a little bit skewed in a sense, you know, um, what kind of data sets are you using to, to teach, you know. So anyways, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, so let me actually ask you another question about social media. In recent years, uh, we have seen the rise of social media and uh, the ways in which it has transformed our society, right? Um, while it has obviously brought many benefits, um, you know, such as connecting people, uh, you know, uh, across the globe and kind of amplifying important voices like like your own voice, for example. Uh, and it has also had negative consequences, including, you know, spreading misinformation, disinformation, and kind of, you know, fostering these toxic online environments as well, unfortunately. Um, so as someone who has used social media yourself, Pashan Ajan, so um, to kind of raise awareness, uh, you know, about important issues, um, what is your perspective on the role of social media in kind of shaping our culture? Uh, and what do you believe we should do to kind of, if possible, uh, mitigate, you know, its negative effects while kind of, you know, still kind of harnessing its potential for good? Um, I have to first of all accept the fact that I don't use social media anymore. Um, I haven't used it, I think, since last May. Uh, I was extremely bullied and trolled and it affected my mental health a lot and since then i haven't used it so most of my media is handled by staff that is focusing on people who might have donated to learn and are willing to follow up so they see the updates on my timeline or something like that um Mm -hmm. but in all honesty i wouldn't have been here without social media too so i don't want to shy away from the fact um i Nobody listens to just a random kid who's 17, 18 year old and is asking about education and stuff. So I had to use social media as my only awareness raising tool because our people knew between, yes, this is unfair. We don't have school. We don't have clinic. But the people uh, in Kabul didn't care. <laughs> people who were donating to them didn't care. So for us, it was like, okay, 
we need to challenge that. And where was it being challenged? And one thing that has happened in the past is like uh, a lot of people would pay Twitter people to talk about them or like, you know, how uh, like propaganda was being paid to do. Mm-hmm. In Afghanistan, it happened a lot. Um, so what we would do is challenge the whole narrative. Oh, no, but okay, this is a good guy, but he's also corrupt. <laughs> He also stole money from Afghanistan. He stole money from schools or from soldiers or something like that. So mm-hmm. that gives you credibility that, okay, you're challenging someone in an open platform and um, mm-hmm. it could be consequential. Yes, it could be something that could harm you, but at the same time, you are questioning them. So I think that's very important. Um, at the same time, it gives you access, to, especially young women, it gives you access to a space where you can talk about yourself. Normally, you don't have that space, that luxury in your own household or in your own spaces. So that's important mm-hmm. uh, to have that. Um, one thing I think could be done better is like when somebody actually submits a report <laughs> of uh, being bullied or being trolled, mm-hmm. it's actually taken mm-hmm. into account. Most of them, Twitter and Instagram, when you submit those, especially f- uh, Facebook too, when you submit those reports, they're like, oh, we didn't find something uh, troll worthy. Then I wouldn't be. Right or submitting it in the first place. Some people might mm. because they're crazy, but most mm. majority of the time, women are harassed online. Women are bullied right. online. They are suppressed yeah. and they are told to, you know, shut up. That's the simple thing. The mitigation is, I think it has to be become more safer. It again has to be decolonized. Somebody could be cussing at me in Pashto and nobody would understand because mm. Instagram doesn't understand Pashto. But at the same mm. time, that's a Talib supporter who's taken over that space and is trying to yeah. do that every time I post or talk you know so maybe there should be more of hiring in that month and more mm-hmm. of people who check those sort of cases and stuff um, and people were actually banned from those spaces as a very important thing or actually given a warning to you don't do that to young girls you don't yeah. threaten them to like you know rape them or um, uh, uh, what was that when they were like lashes when I was talking right. so much there were a few Taliban supporters who kept on tweeting uh, under my tweet they were like oh you are uh, spoke uh, speaking a lot you need some lashes when Afghanistan was taken over that's mm-hmm. uh, verbal violence but twitter didn't seem to care about it so those are the sort of right. things that we have to understand it's amazing when you think about it i mean all these platforms obviously i can only imagine that it's it's not that easy to kind of you know create like a space which is like safe enough for everyone to be on it and and kind of also feel safe, you know, uh, and, and using these platforms at the same time. So, uh, and something that I also noticed, and uh, this was actually, um, some, a friend actually told me about this. Um, she said, uh, you know, you should go and actually check all these, uh, you know, like the difference between a female and a male putting out some content and then just check out all these uh, comments and see what the differences are. Uh, she said, and, you know, like the way people comment on a, a female content creator is so different than, than a male one. So th- so that that's number one. And I actually did that. I, I went into, you know, like a, uh, I checked this in twi- on Twitter. I did this on YouTube and I immediately actually saw what you mean. So because the language uh, which is used, you know, the bullying uh, going with that, with the, the sexism there, you know, all these things. Uh, uh, so you, I, I was immediately actually shocked by by seeing all these, uh, you know, the differences between how people are reacting to uh, to, to just based on gender. Um, so that, that was that was that was something I, I noticed as well. So. All right. So let me actually 
uh, ask you something about uh, gender equality and uh, inequality. Um, so this is obviously a hot topic, uh, especially in the context of Afghanistan and uh, what has been happening there for the last years, uh, decades, uh, centuries perhaps. Um, so uh, let me start by asking you, if you don't mind, uh, defining for us gender equality. Uh, what does this term mean? Uh, I mean, males and females surely uh, are not the same. Uh, you know, they differ physically, they differ emotionally, uh, there's like different hardware and software going on there. So how can they be equal? Let me tell you something very, like, you know, very, just very simple. It's like no woman is competing with a man in wrestling. <laughs> They are not necessarily wrestling. That's why, oh, we are, we are almost the same. That's because I can lift the same weights that you can. No, it's not even equal among men. Some men are short, some are tall, some are um, more able to lift something, some are not. That's just the physique right. of it. Nobody's the same way all the time. That really happens. So that's the first thing. When you see humans, they are not all the same. But right. among men, if it, he's short, if he's tall, if he's one way or the other, he still has access to the sort of same opportunities, right? For mm -hmm. women, it's not the same. For women, you're first sexualized, objectified, um, made you feel like a second-class citizen before you're given the same opportunity. In the Western world, today, people glorify it big time. A hundred years ago, they couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote. Now, there's a gender pay gap. And even, right. like, I don't know what the future holds for the next generation of women with all this bullying mm -hmm. and trolling and everything is happening. So the world is not becoming a safer or equal space for girls um, mm -hmm. yet. Uh, I think that's something that we need to think about. So equality, gender equality is not, oh, me and you were physically the same. No, I can literally give uh, birth to a child. Men can never do that. So <laughs> that's good for us. Biologically, I'm seeing naturally. Um, but then at the same time, I should be able to access the same opportunity because I put in the same hour of time uh, into the same mm -hmm. project that somebody else is doing who uh, identifies as a man, and, but they are compensated more and I'm not compensated enough. Although I'm working double because I'm working in the office and I'm working at home. Of course, the work right. at home thing is a very different thing, but in the office, I will still not be compensated the same thing. So that is lack of like you know understanding the first thing. Of course, men are always picked in the senior executive positions. Why? Because uh, they won't leave, go on paternal leave. That's also mm -hmm. uh, like you know an informed decision making, but that happens. Um, the last but not the least, look at our parts of the world. Their gender equality is a totally a completely different topic. I was talking to the about the West right now, but now I'm talking about Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, gender equality is seen as something that's gonna make you look bad. That's gonna be mm -hmm. something horrible that you need for someone for your neighbor's women, but not for your own girls. And that's wrong. That's so wrong because at the end of the day, you do need a financially independent daughter, so she's not domestically right. abused when she's married off, and she's not blackmailed right. into staying into that. So gender equality is having access to equal opportunities because I put in the mm -hmm. same type of work that you do based on merit, right. not based on gender. That's the most important thing. Equal opportunities, so based on merit. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I would vote for that. Um, so, yeah. So I think you um, uh, mentioned it briefly, although you didn't uh, uh, say it as such, but I think you were uh, alluding to something like the patriarchy, which is 
You know, nowadays, especially in the West, there is a lot of talk about this so-called patriarchy. And um, do you think the Afghan society, now broadly speaking, fundamentally is a patriarchal society with kind of males on top, kind of dictating, you know, how females should live their lives? Or am I simplifying things too much? Because, you know, there are also matriarchs in our societies, no? I was just going to say that. Um, one thing that has been confused about Afghanistan is people think that it's a patriarchal society. Historically, we are not patriarchal or matriarchal. We are sort of 50-50-ish. Uh, when you go to the village elder, he is the elder, but women have access to the matriarch of the village. So everybody goes to her if it's women, especially men also go because they cannot approach the patriarch because he's so scary and stuff. So Afghanistan is a very different story, right? Um, at the same time, my grandma was a matriarch of our family. Um, now I am the matriarch of my family um, after my father. Um, I have a brother, but I have taken the family responsibility. So yes, um, the, 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 uh, the West tries to simplify it, but we are not a patriarchal society past 40 years has radicalized patriarchy in Afghanistan in a very toxic way. But before that, in even some parts of it still exist in Afghanistan, where men always go to, uh, like, you know, the, uh, house, or old, the oldest person in the family, if it's a woman, her decision mm -hmm. is very important. Um, right. At the same time, it always has to transition into that way. So I think for me, it's, it's a different society now. It has been radicalized. Our value has been robbed and radicalized and weaponized against us but culturally we're a very matriarchal society um anyway so let, let me uh, ask you a question actually about something you have said um uh, recently i uh, actually listened to one of your uh, interviews you said something about uh, women's empowerment and girls empowerment so what are these uh, concepts what do they mean to you personally those are broad concepts but i think for me the most important thing would be um Accessing opportunity is the most important thing, but having empowered, uh, not being used as a jargon or as a project where you're like, oh, I'm empowering women through this thing. Even when I'm asked that, like, oh, you're empowering us through education. I'm not actually. I'm just one of the, like, you know, people who are trying to do their best because uh, that's what is needed of me. But at the end of the day, empowerment means you feel the ownership and the power in your own space. You feel worthy enough or empowered enough to take action, to believe in people, to run an organization, to have that sort of access. So for me, that's very important. And I think it's been used in so many ways and it has been politicized in so many ways that people forget right. that women empowerment yeah. and girls empowerment means empowerment of that nation, you know, empowerment of that 50% mm -hmm. of that nation. And it's very important, but it could be through education, through business, through financial literacy, through financial education and independence. And those are important things. Those are the foundation of every empowerment that I see personally. Right. Uh, let me ask you a question uh, about LGBT community, because I recently actually had the opportunity to talk to um one of the Afghan LGBT community leaders. And uh, she told me about the horrors uh, that the community is facing on a daily basis. So what are your views about the Afghan LGBT community, especially with regards to human rights? Honestly, I don't feel like I'm an advocate enough to talk on that space because it's something that somebody who has been through that should talk about. I personally also believe that platforms are always taken where if I'm like, you know, invited to a space and I feel important enough to talk about everyone's cause. 
I haven't been through what they might have been through. I don't know what horrors they might have been through. And I think it's very important people who talk about these sort of stuff, uh, who have access to that sort of learning, uh, should be talked to and should be approached and they should be the ones followed with this sort of learning. Um, that's the most important thing. Yes, human rights abuses happen all the time in Afghanistan on all the levels. Best thing would be as following people who are actually working on it. Right, but uh, would you still say that they are really marginalized and they are discriminated and kind of bullied and even imprisoned and, and, and punished and killed? And and this is, you know, not only in a country such as Afghanistan, but they're like, um, you know, around the world, actually, they're being discriminated. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I definitely do. It's something I have seen all over the world. People are scared to talk about their gender. Women are scared to talk about their gender all the time. Right. Uh, we're conditioned to believe that way. So I definitely right. believe in that. Yeah, I wouldn't right. shy away from that. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about culture and religion. Uh, so these are sensitive topics, and I understand that. Uh, nevertheless, I think, uh, you know, all topics should be debatable and, and people should discuss them. So, um, and I also understand, you know, that there's like a kind of, you know, people need to find a balance between, you know, like things like tradition and progress. It's always, I think, you know, it's a delicate kind of dance, uh, if you will. So um, now I have been personally thinking a lot about the impact of um, something like, you know, decades of war, uh, you know, economical crisis, uh, poverty, you know, uh, suffering, all these things, uh, specifically, you know, the impact on culture or the collective kind of consciousness of, of a nation or a people. All right, so um, now whether one believes that, you know, a movement like the Taliban represent or doesn't represent the majority of the people of Afghanistan. One thing that I've been uh, constantly hearing about the nature of this movement is that they are a majority Pashtun movement, all right? So while not all Pashtuns are Taliban, obviously, Almost all Taliban are Pashtuns. Now, this obviously kind of complicates things a little bit. So Taliban have been accused uh, of Pashtun chauvinism, you know, uh, enforcing Pashtunism on people, um, things like, you know, having a sense of superiority over other ethnic groups. Uh, the Taliban have said it themselves uh, that the majority of their policies are in fact based on their, you know, as they call it, awanyat, your Pashtun kind of heritage, you know, culture, uh, their own uh, understanding of the Asian moral codes and, and customs, things like this. Now, I would like to get your opinion on this matter, uh, Pashtunajan. So do you think there is anything special about the Pashtun culture that gave rise to this movement? Or was this all just a coincidence, you think? Let's backtrack a bit. If we have to discuss it, let's backtrack. I'm not going to say that because I'm a Pashtun, so I have to defend Pashtunism right now. But let's backtrack and look at the fact, where did it start from? Taliban, when they first came in power, people actually celebrated, if we are not wrong, they were like, oh, what was it called? Doves of Peace or something like that. And it's actually written in American newspapers. I'm not saying it myself. It's written in American newspapers. Why? Because people were so done with the Mujahideen. They're like, you know what? We are done. Mujahideen were there, like, you know, predecessors. We cannot scare ourselves, shy away from that either. Um, throwing assets on people's faces, uh, or young girls' faces, um, stopping them from coming on TV and stuff that was started in that era. 
then transitions into this Taliban young people who grew up in refugee camps, just like me, being radicalized to a movement where they're told there's more to Afghanistan than just your ethnicity or nationality. It's Islam. And Islam is being told to you from Aleph from Allah rather than Afghanistan, which says Aleph or Anar whenever you're introduced to Afghanistan in the simple sense. So Aleph or Allah, Jim for Jihad, Mim for Mujahid conditioned that kid. That kid became a Talib and a Talib had those guns. And they started uh, thinking all along like, oh, I'm going to have 70 who's, I don't know what to call them in English. Um, I'm going to have 70 virgins, yeah. I'm going to have 70 virgins uh, when I kill all the infidels who don't believe in the same ideology that I do. Doesn't matter if it's an Afghan, um, I don't know, whatever nationality you pick, anybody who doesn't believe in it. I'm going to kill them and I'm going to get that. It's like a game score for them, like stage one, stage two, stage three. And they were used. These kids were used. These young people were used. The Taliban leaders still take pride in that thing, in suicide bombings that they initiated and orchestrated. But there was a political side to it. All these people who came into power, yes, they came from Kandahar and Khost. The Haqqani network comes from Khost, and the, uh, the Taliban were, uh, who that were supported by the Al-Qaeda came from Kandahar. Yes. But let me let's let's. Why is that? Do you think do you think it's geographically determined because they were like really close to the border? Yeah, or yeah. What's going because, on there? Because, you think? because here's the thing: at refugee schools are we had one refugee school. Do you know how many madrasas were opened around the refugee camp that was not controlled by my father? Forty madrasas, and those madrasas had free uh, meals. You could go and you could st stay there and you could eat, and then they would teach you how many forty versions you could have, or like how you kill an infidel and everything. Well, yes, we start for everything, but at least the girls got educated and they became the people that they are today. So there's this difference. Yes, uh, a lot of people were running from war, from the Soviets, from the uh, communists and whatever, and from the Mujahideen, and they ended up in those refugee camps and they didn't have access to the foreign countries. And even honestly, the diaspora that ended up in the foreign countries are also very big Talib supporters. So I'm like, I don't know where we stand on this, you know? Uh, so right. if you're fed uh, a food like a, a loaf of bread and you're taught all that every day every single day even a lie becomes a truth even that becomes mm -hmm. your reality so that's that but then came the americans people celebrated that too let's not run away from that they celebrated that big time um and then 2003 thousand sort of uh 2003 and 4 taliban got uh like you know very uh, faded away. There, there was nothing existing. Pakistan started selling most of them out. But then there comes the space where Taliban get attraction. Do you know why? Because the uh, allies started bombing the south and those regions. And if it's simple code, it's not Pashtun Wali, it's just how Afghans are. You kill my brother, my father, I'm going to take, uh, like, you know, revenge on that. I don't care. And if you're somebody who's not from this land, if you're somebody who's a foreigner and you believe that killing me is going to give you that. So even normal houses that were raided, normal people whose homes were raided, normal people whose fathers were being murdered, normal farmers who were being murdered. I think you might have seen the videos by now that Australians and U.S. forces might have done in the past. That triggered a lot of young boys being pushed that way, you know. And then they were taught like, oh, these schools where the girls go. These are, uh, they are teaching our girls dishonored and unprideful things. Um, they're 
doing all of this. That's right. And and all of that, all of that, I would agree with, I would say, I mean, that's all, uh, you know, historical facts. And, and, I, and, and I don't think anyone would dispute, you know, what was happening on the ground, for example, with the bombard- bombardments and everything else. But the thing that I have noticed, really, and this is like, uh, this is just a question. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not accusing anyone. I'm not taking sides here. I just want to understand. Okay. So, for example, when I hear that people would say, especially on social media, you see this a lot, uh, because there's so much polarization, unfortunately. Okay, and this is what I'm I'm noticing more and more. I see, for example, that someone would say, "Look, um, these people," and then they would refer to the Taliban, say, as a monolithic kind of you know movement. They would say, "This is a Pashtun uh, problem. Uh, you know, why don't they kind of rise up and and kind of you know uh, take care of this? Because you know, it's not our problem." It's their problem and they have to need, you know, they need to kind of uh, deal with it, kind of th- that, that kind of way, right? That, that's what I've been seeing. That's what I've been reading on social media. I personally disagree with this kind of, you know, over generalization and things like this, obviously. But I would like to know your, your view on this. I mean, that's a very good question. And it's always like, oh, you're against me or something. You know, always that comes to mind. Oh, I have to defend all persons right now. No. Simple thing is, my tribe is the Barakzai Taruzai tribe, which comes from Maruf. Yes, I'm a tribal person. I have been bullied for that a lot. My tribe gave more than 2,300 Pashtun Barakzai men to defend this country in the past two decades, whose widows and children are still there. And when you talk about Maruf, Maruf is a very tiny district. 2,300 young men, age 18 to 25, is the youngest and the only, like, you know, sort of thing. We are literally a district of widows and orphans. So if it's a Pashtun uh, problem, or if it was that problem, how come we couldn't take care of it with all those people being still given, you know? It was not a Pashtun problem. It was a problem of corruption. It was people who abandoned us. It was people who elected themselves with money. It was corrupt politicians, corrupt leaders. And they don't come from one ethnicity. They come from all of our ethnicities. And they made sure that they get double passports. They can siphon off all the money from other countries. And that's how the Taliban got all that. Because justice was not being served, people went to the Taliban, got more trust. Young boys went to the Taliban because nobody was hearing their voices in the parliament when their fathers were being murdered in who right. was a farmer or something like that. So people right, started right. believing in that notion. Oh, maybe the Talib is right. Maybe this person is not my um, uh, ally, my not my Afghan. Maybe it is a foreign installed puppet or something like that but here's the thing here's what is going to change in the next six years is the taliban are doing the same thing they're also alienating people they're also closing schools they're also challenging the narrative and they're also displacing a lot of communities and people and they're literally murdering pashtuns who have been in uh in the army so if it was a Pashtun problem why are they murdering pashtuns in Kandahar. Mm-hmm. They have been murdering yeah. Asakzais and Barakzais left and right because they were in the army right. or in the police. So right. in the next six years, people are going to be frustrated with them too. They're going to be exhausted with them too. And they're going to be driven Obviously. off out too. Um, right. Yes, uh, the majority of the Taliban are persons. And at the same time, yes, there are times where the Taliban are shown as more united front than any of the representatives that we had in the past. But that's not the only reality. That's 70,000 people. 70,000 right. men cannot so, be your representative. That's impossible. Right, no, right, right. So so just to kind of uh, make this clear, uh, 
also for the listeners here, Pastor John. So, would you would you say that there are like would you see elements of your own like background and the culture where you yourself come from, and you would recognize that in a movement like the Taliban, and you would say, oh well, you know what, I recognize that, and I actually disagree with this whole thing, whether it is mine or it's someone else's. If it's extremism, I don't care if it's Pashtun or it is Tajik or this or that. I would condemn it nevertheless. Oh yeah, is, definitely, is definitely. Oh yeah, I have condemned Taliban so much. I feel like I am like <laughs> they hate me the most because here's the funny thing. I don't agree with anything that they have to say. They might identify as Pashtuns. They are not Pashtuns. Pashtuns have so much ghairat, and I feel like they have none. Ghairat is pride and honor. They don't have any. They sold us out. They, they are not accepting the women of their own country. They're not Afghans. They're not Pashtuns. They don't, don't, definitely don't stand for Pashtun Wali or Afghanian. I'm going to say it all the time until I die. They are not the people that would... I personally would believe that they are persons or Afghans, and I definitely don't agree with anything that they do. Um, no, that's not what we take All right. pride in. No. All right. So perfect. So let's let's move um, let's move on to another topic, which is Islam. So this is another you know sensitive topic. Nevertheless, uh, I think it's it's worth discussing these things. Um, so Islam obviously is the predominant religion, uh, you know, of Afghanistan, and and since Afghanistan is an Islamic country or it has been dubbed as such, uh, you know, has, has been identified as such. Um, logically, I mean, the Taliban, you know, implement the Sharia. If you, you know, label a country Islamic, you know, the logical outcome of that would be what is Islamic in this sense? You know, you would probably be tempted to go with something like Sharia. Okay, that's that's one thing. But to me, something like this seems to be incompatible with our 21st century, you know, modern kind of moral framework, if you will, um, where we have concepts such as, you know, human rights and all these things. Um, you know, the Taliban, we know, I mean, they stone people to death. Uh, they cut off hands, uh, you know, ban girls from getting an education and all these things, right? This is nothing new. Do you think there is a way for a nation uh, to be Islamic and at the same time, progressive, kind of respecting, you know, modern values uh, where citizens, you know, have rights and live freely? Uh, without being kind of forced into, you know, or, or forced by their tyrannical kind of governments to live and behave in a certain way. Do you think that's possible? Islam is weaponized and radicalized for the past four decades to use Afghans as tools and objects to fight international wars, cold wars between different superpowers. That's that simple. Islam is used as a propaganda tool in Afghanistan. The Sharia that the Taliban are trying to implement is not even Sharia. If they knew what Sharia was, they would be actually following other different Islamic countries that are still allowing all their girls. And by the way, when I say still allowing, that's still an offensive thing to say, but are allowing girls to go to school. So what the Taliban are trying to say is like, in my toxic mind, what I think is much more better than all the 50 Muslim countries or all these other Muslim countries that are allowing girls to go to school, that are allowing women to work and everything. Um, so that's a very completely different interpretation of what Islam mm -hmm. and Sharia is. The second thing I think would be the most important thing for us to think about is right now in this 21st century, the more I look at the world, the more I find it polarized because of different religions, not only just Islam. You look at India, and Hinduism is like on the rise and like, you know, extremism, people are not like India used to be the example where like secularism where people were like way more different than everything. And of course, this is the uh, 
fruits of British uh, coming to the subcontinent. They have literally right. radicalized every religion there is. Pakistan is one of the fruits of that uh, them coming to south subcontinent and we are because we are a buffer so we came under the fire because of that although we are central asia so mm-hmm. i think right now religions even now in the uh, in european countries uh, there are different countries are using uh, like you know christianity uh, or white supremacy to uh, like you know the uh, abuse many human rights you know so there's right. very little space and religion is being radicalized as being used as a weapon in that space i do have a belief that afghanistan can be a country that could be islamic and still mm-hmm. respect human rights still be culturally acceptable and still be acceptable to the minorities that lived in afghanistan like the sikh and the jews um and all the other different religions that we might not even know about um so right. Yes, there is a huge chance for us, but with the current situation, with the current people in the lead who think they are better Muslims than the whole world, I don't think there are much chances for us to go into that direction. However, right. in the past that has happened and that can happen in the future too. Have you uh, personally thought about because you you said, you know, we we could basically it is compatible to be an Islamic nation but at the same time progress progressive basically that's that's what i got from from your answer there but um have you thought about like all these political systems that you would prefer say suppose you know you would be in charge um you know tomorrow you know uh, it's 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 not entirely impossible you know maybe not tomorrow but you know you never know you're still young i would say so um uh you know something like you know we have several political systems you know and we have experimented in this country forever if you will you know the latest the latest one is islamism i would say you know that that we're experiencing right now but you know before that there was you know the, the last 20 years there was an experiment, experimentation with liberalism things like this so have you thought about this and uh, what are your views about you know say something like you know a par- parliamentary democracy would you prefer that or would you say no actually since we're you know islamic you know we should have something like islamism there as well um, or maybe even something like federalism i don't know these isms you know people's talk about these things have you thought about it or, or no i definitely would want our country to have more political institutions that are not influenced by different factors so yes we're an islamic republic of afghanistan but we should have uh, a political institution it could be different sort of democracies that could be chosen by the people of afghanistan i do have a word personally believe in the representation of each and every ethnicity province people uh, uh, that e- including the minorities that are have always been ignored in the past and mm-hmm. even now so i think the most important thing for me would be what do the people choose if they choose federalism good for them if they choose a parliamentarian um uh, majority sort of thing yes good for them if that's something that they want to have one leader which is like the presidential sort of thing with different representatives right. and governor that are elected good for them right. um but i definitely mm-hmm. would want a stronger political institutions with very realist um national policies where we Sen- would you say central centralized or decentralized i i i would personally go for a decentralized movement i i do believe that it's time that we start experimenting with something that we have never experimented with and uh, people feel safe in within their own communities that might mm-hmm. get back the confidence of us as a nation because that's mm-hmm. always going to be used against us it's like oh we have never used it that's why we're feeling big time let's use it let's see right. if maybe that is a solution for us why not um so sure right. um but um we have experimented with central approach and it's not working right now i don't think it has worked so why go right. go to something that's already failing you right 
right? I think we are we are both on the same page here. So let's let's just you know uh, leave uh, these heavy you know topics uh, behind us, um, you know, religion and politics, all these things. Uh, so let's uh, dive into another topic, which is philosophy. Let me ask you, uh, you know, about uh, you know a little bit of a philosophical question here. Now you you have described yourself as an activist uh, for education. Uh, how do you balance your role as an activist with your personal life and responsibilities? You know, do these things sometimes clash? Oh, big time, all the time, all the time. I, the first time I gave up on my Oxford dream, my mom was like, I'm not going to let you live in this house. I was like, okay, <laughs> I may move to my cousins or something like that. It it happens. It happens a lot. Um, there have been times where uh, people think they look down on you because you work in the humanitarian sector and you're an activist and you come on TV a lot. So there's always that looking down that I don't feel great about because they're like, oh, if you're a businessman, you're good to go. If you're a journalist, you're good to go. If you're something technically better, you're good to go. But if you're an activist or somebody who is working in NGOs in a country that doesn't have any agenda for the next 20, 30 years, um, there's a lot of judgment around that. There's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, stress around that. So yes, that's uh, a lot of issues come with that. But I, I think I have embraced the role fully. <laughs> I'm very happy with it. Mm-hmm. I think I would choose to be an activist over everything all the again and again. But I definitely am finding my peace this year. Right. And uh, from becoming an extremely loud person, I'm becoming an extremely grounded person. And I'm g- glad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have a personal philosophy yourself that you know you kind of adhere to because you know i can only imagine i mean if i was in your place um you know going through all these troubles you know every single day i mean for me for example when i uh experience you know tough times uh really i i I, philosophy is really my my way of kind of dealing with with you know the situations that i am in in that moment uh and so that helps me a little bit you know if it's stoicism, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, Marcus Aurelius and all these things and meditation from time to time. And and I wonder if you have any personal philosophy in your own life that kind of, you know, you'll go back to and kind of, you know, have like the bigger picture when you're like dealing with, you know, situations where like, oh, my goodness, this will never, you know, uh, we will never find a solution for this. But then you kind of, you know, sit back a little and then you see the bigger picture and you're OK, well, you know, just relax. Everything will be fine. Of course, I do read a lot of Marcus Aurelius and I do follow a lot of stoicism. And at the same time, I read a lot of like, you know, Joseph Murphy or Gabby Bernstein, like to help me with my mental health and everything. Um, But on a philosophical level, I think the only thing that helps me a lot is um, I'm 25 and I already have had like two like life-shaking experiences one was the passing of my father and the second was Afghanistan falling and every time I go into a space where I somebody's trolling me or somebody's bullying me or something is taken over or something is happening and I sit back and I think to myself I'm like those two things happened and I didn't die uh, this won't kill me <laughs> so I'll get through it it's gonna be hard it's gonna be challenging but I'll get through it if those mm-hmm. couldn't like you know shake me this 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 is much easier this is much uh, in Pashto we say which is like sweeter um, uh, sadness you know like you know much easier to evolve it so I think I tell this the second philosophy I think um, when you're in that space you also become very hurtful to other people and you might say things that you might not um, might not be able to take back so I think that's the one place where I follow my mother she's an mm-hmm. extremely peaceful person people would talk all the stuff 
and she would never see something to hurt them like you know mm -hmm. and I try to do that. Of course, I'm not perfect. I, I, I at time attack people and stuff, <laughs> but right. I definitely do uh, follow her on that. Is like, don't hurt people and don't say anything if is if it's gonna hurt people. That's it. Well, I, yeah, I, I love that because you know sometimes I have these you know ideas when I talk to my own mother. You know, she would tell me. Okay, so you have been reading a lot, yeah. I'm, yeah, well, this this is the latest thing, you know, that I discovered, you know, whether it is philosophy or politics, or whatever. And then she would, you know, give me some lessons, life lessons, and I would say, oh, just just humble me, like, okay, <laughs> you know. What I mean? So, those are those are life lessons, and those are really like kind of things that you can carry with yourself for the rest of your life. So that's like a philosophy in itself. Okay, so that's beautiful. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your book, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Prashant John. So, um, you have an upcoming uh, book soon to be published. So congratulations on that, first of all. And uh, I believe it will be in stores in May, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. So uh, the, and the title of the book is um, uh, Last to Eat, Last to Learn, My Life in Afghanistan, Fighting to Educate Women. So first of all, let me ask you this question. Why did you choose this title? What does this mean, Last to Eat, Last to Learn? And also, is it a memoir? Uh, what is the book about? Uh, what can readers expect to learn from it? So the name was chosen actually because I was ranting so much about like ranting about like oh young girls oldest girls don't get to do this da da da, da because I'm the oldest daughter, and then my co-author was like you know what I see a lot of pattern like every story you tell me the girl is always supposed to put herself last like even when she's eating she's supposed to feed her mm. younger siblings first then she gets to eat uh, if she's gonna go to school she's gonna go to school last before she sends all her siblings and everything. If they can afford mm -hmm. it, so that's where she came up with this name, and I'm so grateful to her for this name. Um, it is a memoir, but it's also about me being just sarcastic about half of the stuff that happened in <laughs> Afghanistan and trying to navigate right. my life through it. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely is funny. I'm very shy to talk about my book because it's my life story. <laughs> so, so you mentioned it's a, it's a memoir. So I wonder what what inspired you to kind of write this book in the first place, and and what message do you really hope? you know, readers will take away from it. Honestly, it. the book started as something that we were exploring um, uh, educational systems in Afghanistan through stories where different women were doing right. different things. And mm -hmm. uh, as we started doing this, um, it became, I think, at some point more about me because <laughs> we were doing all these stuff and all these women were somehow related to me by blood or by work or by something mm -hmm. else. And that's yeah. how it just transitioned into something like this. It it started off something where we were focusing on individual stories, but it became this. Right. And the lesson I think um, a lot of people would learn from this is you don't have to be old enough. You don't have to have a million degrees. You don't have to have a lot mm. of money um, to do something. Uh, you can just take mm. the leap. You need to have a, uh, someone who is going to help you. My father helped me a lot. He gave me a lot of money for that. So I'm grateful <laughs> to him for that. But the, on a serious note, it helps you take a leap, especially when you are a young girl uh, who's trying to find herself, who's trying to find her identity in a very complex environment where you're still struggling with if you hate the child that you were or do you like it? Is it your culture or is it your religion? Mm -hmm. Is it both? Right. So that sort of thing, like, you know, but also what is important? What is something that I would bet my life on it, you know? That was the sort of right. thing for me. Education is the most important thing. So I was like, you know what? Right. I'm all in for it, and I'm going to make sure that I do. I stand right by it. So yeah. Well, I'm. Uh 
glad that you wrote it. And so uh, I very much uh, look forward uh, reading it. And I also encourage listeners to buy your book and uh, read it and even, you know, gift it maybe to their friends and families. And I'm sure there is, uh, you know, some wisdom to be found there as well. Um, so, you know, and um, and also kind of read it for themselves. And I think, you know, reading books and uh, whether it's a memoir or anything else, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of pushes you to think about these things. And it also kind of helps you, you know, practice your critical thinking and things like this. I always encourage my listeners to do that, you know, with all of my guests. So, all right. So uh, finally, uh, for our listeners who may be inspired uh, by your work, Pashtanajan, and want to support your efforts, um, what are some, you know, concrete ways basically for them to kind of get involved and uh, make a difference? Um, are there specific programs or initiatives uh, that could, uh, you know, use their support basically? Um, or maybe organizations, you know, listeners can probably donate to, things like this. Um, maybe people can volunteer. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So we have our website, which is, which is www.learnafghan.org. You can also uh, follow our social media handles. And uh, what they can do is, A, they can share our work with people who might be interested in our work um, to make sure that some people might have families back home who could access our learning uh, platforms and stuff like that. So that's good. Um, the second thing would be to volunteer with us. Maybe uh, email us and we could, uh, like, you know, uh, pair you with a student who might need your help. Um, third, share uh, your GoFundMe link in, our, uh, in, in your network that might be able to support because that completely goes 100% towards the girls and their tuition. So that sort of things are always helpful. Um, but most importantly, just uh, like, you know, sharing the word is a very good thing. Yeah. All right. So, Vashanajan, uh, we are almost now at the very end. And I have a couple of questions, which are uh, the questions that I promised you. These are going to be fun questions. These questions, Vashanajan, uh, are meant really to be kind of fun and lighthearted and will hopefully give our listeners a chance kind of to get to know you better. Um, so how does that sound? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So, all right. Perfect. So let me ask you the first question. What is your favorite food? Osh. Always Osh. I love Osh. Oh, <laughs> lovely. I love that too. All right. So what is your favorite book and why? Okay. Um, I think Rumi's Daughter is something I, I have read over and over again. And I think uh, for some reason, I am fascinated by that book, by his journey from Afghanistan to Turkey. I can go on and on about it, but Rumi's Daughter is my favorite book. Yeah. Activism or writing poetry? Well, in a perfect day, I definitely would go for writing poetry. <laughs> All right. Um, if you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and why? These are so many women that I want to have dinner <laughs> I think I definitely, in ancient Afghanistan, Gaur Shabbikan, Prabhupada. Like, I have a list. Zargunana, Nazarana, Malika Saraya. Uh, I think all of these women would be definitely someone that I would want to have Shadrani because she was the first literary poet of modern Afghanistan. first. So those sort of women, yeah, I would definitely be interested wow. in. It's going to be an awesome dinner. Yes. No, uh... I know. Imagine that. <laughs> all right. What is your favorite place in the world? I have this uh, vineyard in Kandar. It's in Dand. And I know I, I sound very biased because I'm a Kandari and I talk about Kandar a lot. But in this vineyard, we have this tiny garden and you can find roses in it in December. So when it's mm. like really cold and everything is dead, you'll still find roses in it. That's, I think, the mm. most, um, it's my most favorite place in the whole wide world. If I could be one place, I would always be there. It's a very beautiful place. Sounds lovely. Uh, what is the one thing you cannot live without? Try sabs. 
green tea. It's like oh, something really? <laughs> I'm obsessed with. <laughs> yeah. What is the most interesting thing you have learned recently? The most recent thing is like I always thought I'm an extremely competitive person and I would never be okay with somebody who's in like in the same category as me and like being okay with it. But I recently learned I'm quite frankly a very supportive person. I support and like cheer on other people who are working in the same environment. I'm accepting this because it's very hard for people to think, oh, I'm perfect. I don't have anything else. No, I have flaws. But I have learned that I can be very happy around people who work in the same environment and have that sort of like, you know, sharing, imparting knowledge. Yeah. If you could time travel, would you travel to the past or the future and why? Because Afghanistan is a better place. I think ancient <laughs> Afghanistan, very ancient, mm. you know, ancient Afghanistan, like even 300 years because Afghanistan was literally like a Central Asia Silk Road a civilization center. So definitely, mm -hmm. I think I would go to Gawar Shah Begum's uh, time, just see the minarets, look around and mm. like, you know, enjoy the poetry and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And have dinner with them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing people would be surprised to know about you? What is one thing that they would be surprised to know about me? Well, that's, that's uh, something... <laughs> Uh, fascinating. <laughs> wow, I don't have anything that people would be surprised. Oh, yeah. No? One thing. I think people think I'm an extremely serious person and I'm always mm. like, oh, this is happening, bad people, everything. I'm an extreme. I would definitely be a comedian if I was not an activist. Uh, I am very funny. I believe that. I have a lot of good sense of humor and I take pride in that. And a lot of people don't know that about me yet. If you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? Hmm. Fly back, you know, <laughs> flying. I know invisible is a thing. A flying. Yeah, flying. Okay. Flying because mm -hmm. flying gets me like I can get good, go to places, especially places then I can fly up from it. So like I can fly. Flying like this. The Superman Superwoman kind of. Yeah, Superman, Super okay. Superwoman. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see. Okay. Well, I would rather be invisible. I thought about this question. No, no. Let's see. I, I wanted to be invisible. I have always chosen invisible, but that doesn't help me a lot. You know, I okay. I need to fly back to Afghanistan and like, you know, mess with the Taliban oh. and come back. Oh, yeah. you know? Right. Right. Maybe an invisible a superwoman yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. All right. What do you think happens after we die, Pashanajan? That's a complicated question, you know. I, I have so much complicated thoughts about it. I feel like, where does a soul go? I am, I am a very troubled soul myself. <laughs> I'm like, where does a soul go? What happens to it? Everything of that sort. Um, but I do think um, the soul goes to a better place, um, depending on what. Do you think there is an afterlife? Yeah. There's a, there's, 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 a, there's a good chance of an afterlife. Um, but also I want to believe in afterlife because uh, I want to meet my father. I want to see him again. And mm. uh, that's the only hope I have. For. Um, so what is the best advice you have received in your life so far? I think the best advice that uh, I have received is um, a lot of people, you might think they know you, but they don't know you. So you can completely like, you know, reinvent yourself. You don't have to be this mm. person. You don't have to have this uh, identity 24 by 7 where like, you know, you have to be serious, where you have to be stressed, you have to be sad and everything, you know. 
you can be mm-hmm. whatever you want to be. It doesn't have to be all fat. So I think that's a good mm-hmm. advice. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you a question about fate. So we talked already about afterlife. Uh, do you believe in fate, or do we have, you think, complete control over our lives? I think fate does play a good role in it. Um, but even with the, like, you know, back home we used to say like, even like when you do bad stuff in 40 days, your lives are gonna change. <laughs> you're going right, to change. Yeah. So you're going to transition into that. But at the end of the day, I do think uh, the world is an unfair place. Good. bad things happen to good people i know all of that mm. i'm not an optimist right. but at the same time right. i do believe that there is a fate maybe this life mm. that life but there is one yeah if you had to choose between living a comfortable kind of easy life with no challenges or struggles um or really a difficult one kind of challenging life with full full of ups and downs kind of thing uh which life would you choose and why another question with the ups and downs life uh right, can it still right. be like you know um not all sad or is it all sad and gloomy all the time well not necessarily of course okay i mean it can be it can be sad you know from time to time obviously but you know sometimes people i would think need to go you know to experience like sadness in order to understand what happiness means yeah. you know what i mean I think I would go for a challenging life, not because uh, I don't like comfort. I love comfort. I love staying at home. But at the same time, challenges make you the people that you become. It makes mm. you thrive, and definitely, I'm sort of person who would thrive on a challenge. So it's definitely a challenging life. Although I cry and complain right. about it a lot when I'm in the process. <laughs> What do you think is the key to happiness, Ashanjan? I think you have to accept yourself and be happy with yourself. Nobody's going to come and make you happy. Not that thing is going to make you happy. You have to be happy in the moment. I'm still trying to learn it. Um it's hard, but you have to be happy with what you have. Yes, you can want more things, but you need to be happy with what you have. That makes you like a whole different person. So we talked already a little bit about authority and tradition and things like this. So do you think that it's important uh, to question authority and tradition? Oh, all the time, all the time. I was young, I used to question everything. I still do all the time. Yes, questioning if you are not able to question it, it definitely is the wrong sort of authority, you know? You you're supposed to do that. It's very healthy. This is the I would say the only way to kind of cultivate, you know, critical thinking. If you if you don't ask authority, you know, question these things, then you just, you know, take it for granted and that's not an advice. Okay. So, what is your message uh, to all the young Afghan girls and boys um in Afghanistan who are listening to us right now and are wondering if they will ever be able to study and pursue their dreams? Oh, that's a tough one. I think um because I sit in comfort I always have that guilt of like uh oh, what should I be even telling them like we are going through so much uh, that I cannot even imagine um just one thing I think I would say is like they have allies that are rooting for them they are cheering for them and they are going to make sure that they get to go to school you know one way or the other it's going to take time it might take a lot of uh, effort but there are people who are going to stand up with them and are standing up with them even if they don't know that's the most important thing yeah and keep dreaming i think afghanistan needs dreamers we have a lot of a lot of different things but we need dreamers yes no i agree and i think uh, we definitely need positive message uh, right now especially so that is that is a little bit of encouragement so yeah beautiful and uh, all right so finally Uh, this is the last question what is the meaning of life according to you pashtanajan what is this all about 
why are we here on this beautiful little planet of ours you think oh that's yeah that's a good philosophical question you have very good questions <laughs> <laughs> i think we're here for something for a reason we're not here just to live our lives and that's it like you know in a very normal way we are here to make some uh, noise and i think we should all be doing it in our own ways um and also like leave the world a better place than it we found it and i heard it from someone else i'm just quoting them um but definitely here to make a difference uh, in a positive way a lot of people take it and they're like making bad differences no make a good difference um definitely lead a life that's helping people not an exemplary life but that's mm-hmm. supporting people around you and uh, like you know bringing in calmness and peace around you yeah kind of giving back to communities where we come from kind of you know if people uh make it somehow you know to a better place you always have to take into account you know that kind of humbleness i guess in your own lives that would be you know my thinking uh this is this is why i i do this in the first place for example what i do right now you know having having this conversation with yourself you know so uh all right all of that makes sense to me um so With that, I think uh, we have come to the end of our podcast. Um, thank you, Pashana John, for being such a wonderful guest uh, on the show. It was a pleasure to have you, and I wish you all the best um, with your important work. Uh, but before we go, is there anything you would like to say to our listeners or any projects uh, you would like to promote, perhaps? Uh, also, please tell our listeners uh, where they can find you on social media. I know you're not so much on the social media lately but anyways or maybe there are any relevant websites uh you would like to mention as well. You can find all my work on all the social media and handles. I'm also active sort of in LinkedIn so if they have something that they want to work with or like you know they might have a family member that they want to enroll in a school or something you can definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn. Um other than that I think it's time Afghans understand the reality of Afghanistan but also focus on the solutions rather than just complaining about it. Yeah. Right and I hope this uh, conversation contributes uh, to that as well. So all right uh thank you all for listening and until next time khodayar nigahdar.